Welcome to Signs of Life, Exploring Survival of Consciousness, brought to you by Forever Family Foundation, on the web at foreverfamilyfoundation.org. I call your name, the echo is haunting, the echo is always the same. I call your name, the echo is haunting, and echo So I call your name, your name. And welcome to the gathering. Oh, don't I, you know, I made a mistake. Today's not a gathering. Today's an interview show. I'm sorry. Welcome to Signs of Life Radio. I'm Bob Ginsberg. We have a special guest tonight, Dr. Jim Tucker. And before I introduce Dr. Tucker... I'll mention if you if you ever had a question about past life memories of children or reincarnation, uh, now's your chance because you have a, a world authority on this subject. So if you want to call in with a question, you can. And the number at the radio station is 888-627-6008. Jim uh, B. Tucker, MD, is the Bonner-Lowry Professor of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences at the University of Virginia. He is Director of the University of Virginia's Virginia's Division of Perceptual Studies, where he is continuing the work of Ian Stevenson with children who report memories of previous lives. He is the author of Before Children, Memories of Previous Lives, a two-in-one edition of his books, Life Before Life and Return to Life, which together have been translated into 20 languages. Dr. Tucker attended the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill for both undergraduate studies and medical school, and he received his training in general psychiatry and child psychiatry at the University of Virginia. He joined uh, the UVA faculty in 2000, and in addition to his research work, he is the director of the Child and Adolescent Psychology uh, Psychiatry Training Program, should mention he's also on the Forever Family Foundation Scientific Advisory Board. Um, and his website is jimbtucker.com. So nice to have you back, Jim. Oh, well, Bob, it's great to be back. It's been a while. Yeah, it has. So, uh, you know, even if I wind up asking you some of the questions that I have in the past, nobody's going to remember. So. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds you good. Know, let's, th- let's start at the beginning. Um, sure you've been asked this before but you know how does just how does a medical doctor become interested in past life memories of children and reincarnation yeah so i did my psychiatry training here as you mentioned and i had heard about this eden stevenson who had been the chairman of the department of psychiatry when he stepped down to focus on these um cases of, of young children who said they remember a past life. Uh, I thought it was curious, uh, but I didn't think anything more than that. And then after my training, I went into private practice and was there for nine years, um, just doing standard child psychiatry um, uh, practice. And then when my wife and I got together, uh, she was interested in things like um, psychic abilities and reincarnation and various things, which I had never given any serious thought to. So I, that got me intrigued. And um, 
I wasn't feeling completely fulfilled in private practice. So when we saw in the local paper that Dr. Stevenson's research group had gotten a grant to do a new study on near-death experiences, um, I decided to call to see if they needed any help interviewing patients. And as it turned out, I never worked on that study, but, but that sort of got my foot in the door. And eventually I came on, well, for a year halftime, and then I left my private practice and, and joined faculty full-time. Uh, so now it's been 22 years. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't specifically the question of past life memories or reincarnation that particularly intrigued me, but what I was really interested in more generally was the question of life after death mm. and the possible evidence for it. So the the subject matter intrigued me and also the approach that uh, the research division was using, which was very uh, serious minded, um, kind of looking for evidence, uh, trying to explore phenomenon just like you would any other phenomena. It just uh, happens to be the, the question of survival after death. Yeah. So, I mean, it's important before we get into um, actual uh, subject of past life memories of children, uh, we've talked about your background and, and that you're the director of, of the Division of Perceptual Studies. So tell us a little bit more about what the uh, division does. Yeah, so the division, uh, which has been going on now for 55 years, um, focuses on the question of consciousness, the, the idea of mind and brain, and, and is mind purely due to brain, or can it operate in some ways separate from the brain? And one way it would do that would be if the brain dies. So there's our work with the reincarnation memories. And then Bruce Grayson is, is a very much a leading authority on near-death experiences. Um, and he's, he's published scores of articles and, and has now published a book. Um, so that work is continuing. Our newest faculty member, Marietta Pelvanova, Pelvanova uh, works in both of these areas, both near-death experiences as well as helping me with the... Um, uh, the reincarnation cases. Uh, in addition, we have a neuroimaging lab uh, that focuses primarily on EEG and trying to sort out what's going on in the brain while people are having extraordinary experiences, including mediumship. So that they're currently doing a study with mediums. Uh, and in fact, just had a medium in the lab this week. It, it got slowed down considerably by the pandemic. Uh, yeah. But now they're back up and, and doing in-person kind of work. Um, but not just that. They also look at psychic abilities, uh, sometimes out-of-body experiences, uh, various things to try to uh, do measurements and, and both validate the experiences, but also try to explore um, how the people are able to do those things. So, so basically everything that you do uh, is is investigating whether – one's consciousness or mind can act independently of one's physical brain. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, you know, I thought I would ask you some, you know, we, we get asked a lot of questions during the radio shows and at events and so forth about uh, reincarnation. I think 
there's some renewed interest when, you know, your work and others was featured on the Netflix surviving death series. And so, you know, and I, people seem to ask the same kind of questions over and over again. <laughs> They're never, maybe never quite satisfied with the answers, but um, let's start with the biggie that people are wondering whether the, the evidence from let's say the, all the, the cases that you've, studied over the years and your predecessor Ian Stevenson does it suggest that reincarnation returning to physical life is a choice or you know not that not everyone reincarnates well yeah that's a really good question um I mean as far as the choice part goes there are some children who say that they were given a choice uh, or at least where to come back to so that they could watch their parents and, and decide they wanted to be born to them, or sometimes their guides will, will lead them to the next life. Um, but as far as whether we all come back here, um, the cases don't really answer that. I mean, you know, it may well be that we all do, um, but it may also be that the kids with the memories are sort of exceptions, that, that that's not the usual process, that consciousness mind may continue on, but not necessarily in this realm, uh, that it uh, at times comes back here and other times goes on to have different kinds of experiences. Yeah. So, you know, if by the very nature that the, these children are talking about, in some cases, um, choosing their parents, you know, or, or making decisions about their next life, that suggests that there is a uh, life between lives, that there's a period of time between the physical incarnation and then the after physical death that they spend there's some time or maybe not time as we know it but um you know before they they come back but i i don't think in the cases there's much discussion of of between lives is there well about 20 percent of the kids will describe some events between lives uh so most don't um, but some do, and occasionally with verifiable details, either about what happened after the previous person died, say watching the previous family do things, or, or sometimes um, observing, you know, like I mentioned, observing their future parents, sometimes giving details that shock and frankly dismay uh, their parents about things they did. Um, so there is some evidence that, uh, yes, there is this in-between life, these uh, sort of this intermission period uh, may not be a blank, but may just be a different kind of experience. Yeah. You know, the, the major question that I think a lot of people um, battle with is why would somebody, you know, choose to return to a physical life that's filled with hardship or emotional or physical, you know, distress and, and, and a host of other things, you know, yeah. you know, and what's, and, and that gets into a more of a spiritual question, you know, cause you know, perhaps it's because it, we just can't think of it in physical terms. Um, but is that, is there any overlap like with the NDE cases? Do the children ever report that, you know, that in their prior life, when they died, that they were told that it's 
for instance, that it's not their time yet and they had to stay longer or, or, uh, well, we don't get that of course, because yeah. you know, those people come back, but we, right. I mean, some of the kids do describe what essentially is a near death experience of, of floating above their body, uh, sometimes seeing other beings, uh, some of them will describe going to heaven. The American kids may use the word heaven. Uh, but, you know, you raise an important question, which I can't say we necessarily have the answer to. But, you know, it's is the suffering that we all experience, is it part of a plan or is it um, at times just sort of a naturalistic process where that kind of happens? So, you know, do do we have all this mapped out? Or like in these cases, I mean, some of the children complain bitterly about where they are in their new life and how much they miss their old one. So you doesn't seem like they chose it. But um, uh, beyond that, um, is there a purpose to this or is it just kind of what happens, you know, through a naturalistic kind of thing, especially since most of the previous lives ended violently or by some unnatural means and did that mean that kind of held the the spirit if we want to use that word the mind to this realm so then it somehow got attached to a new body and was born or is is it sort of the next chapter in an overall picture uh, of existence where you go through rough stuff, you go through easy stuff, but it, it's all sort of toward a single goal. So it's sort of like when someone's working out of the gym, you know, they are quote unquote suffering. I mean, they are intentionally choosing to put themselves in pain or exhaustion to try to make themselves stronger. Well, is, is that analogous to what we may do with these lives? Um, but I have to say that sort of thinking works a lot better um, conceptually than it does emotionally. I mean, if you look at the specifics of what people go through, the horrible suffering and terrible things that happen to people, or including young children, you know, it's, it's not very satisfying to think, well, maybe it's just part of a plan. I mean, it seems like, well, what kind of plan is that? Um, so, so, yes, those are big issues and big questions to, to ponder. Yeah, and, and you know, vir- virtually every book that you read that about spirituality talks about this physical existence as as a school uh, yeah. where we learn lessons, and then the reason we come back is because we have more lessons to learn. I always, um, when I first first started reading about reincarnation, I, I had a hard time grasping that concept because when you come back um, to learn this lesson supposedly that you need to complete your soul or whatever it is um and you have no memory of what that lesson is you know how how do you know how do you learn if you don't know (laughs) what you need to work on you know it's like right you know that 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 was always troubling to me you know so all right so it it wouldn't it wouldn't be facts particularly but you know i i don't remember anything in the first three years of my life, but that, or even more than that, really, uh, first four or five, I, I have virtually no memory. And yet, presumably, those experiences helped shape who I am as an adult. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, you can make a case it would be a similar kind of process. I find that the, the general um, 
misconception, I guess it is among the, the public regarding reincarnation. Um, everybody that I talk to just assumes that it takes, you know, many, many years to reincarnate, you know, that it might, in terms of our time, it might take, you know, 10 years or 20 years. But your research has found that I think the average time between uh, lives is, is 18 months, I think I recall. Is that is that true? Uh, that would be the, uh, the average is four and a half years, but, but oh. if you look at the median, yeah, it's more like 18 months. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, we, we have some cases that are 50 years. So that, that obviously stretches out the average, but yeah, most of them are recent. And now partly that's because, uh, we can't really identify typically a previous personality who was, you know, lived 200 years ago. Um, so there's some selection kind of bias there. The more recent it is, the more likely we are to be able to identify the previous person. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course we do have quite a few cases where the child talks sometimes at great length about a past life, but, but nobody's able to verify that it actually matches a life. Um, so it, it, that's much more likely to happen with an ancient life than it would be a recent one. Um, all that being said, yeah, you know, yes, we've got plenty of cases that are very recent. So uh, I think partly people may have that perception because uh, with a lot of the hypnotic regression work, people recall lives from a long time ago. Um, but that doesn't mean that, I mean, even if you believe in hypnotic regression, uh, that doesn't mean that it's not possible for, for it to be a much shorter interval. Yeah. Any thoughts as to why... Um these past life memories um, fade um, as, as children get older? Well, my thought is that for all of us, like I mentioned, I don't have any memories of, of anything or virtually no memories before the age of five, um, even though there were things that were in my long-term memory. I mean, if, you know, if you have a grandparent who you know and love, but if, if you're three years old when, that person dies, but by the time you're seven or eight, you're probably not going to remember them. And so it would kind of make sense that you would lose the past life memories at the same time that you lose your early childhood memories. And it is because the the brain is going through tremendous changes uh, during that time, kind of pruning out what it doesn't need. And um, so our early memories leave and and it seems like the past life memories typically do. Now there are exceptions, and and um, uh, there are adults who say that they still have at least some memories of their past life. Yeah, a lot of adults, it seems, you know, yeah. but, you know, and that's what they attribute all their phobias to. So, right. Yeah. Um, so some of the most compelling cases uh, that you've researched and um, are with uh, birthmarks. Um, so. Just tell our audience a bit about that and some possible explanations as how that might occur. Yeah, so those are cases where the child is born with birthmarks or even birth def- full birth defects that match wounds, uh, usually the fatal wounds, on the body of the previous personality who died. Um, and you know, that can be a little bit mind-blowing. So, you know, how, how did a, a injury on one body kind of show up in the next life? I mean, even if you believe in reincarnation. Um, th- 
the way I like to think of it is that it's not necessarily the injury on the body itself, but more the impact that it has on the mind, that that image affects the mind, sort of imprints it. And then when it starts over in a new life, uh, those images then affect the developing fetus. And, and we do know from other kinds of work that mental images can produce very specific effects at times on the body. Uh, so in this case, it would be kind of like PTSD. It'd be this very traumatic memory and image uh, that then affects the developing fetus and, and leads to, to a similar uh, birth marker or birth defect in, in the child. Hmm. I Okay, here's the number one question that, that we get and it's every every show. Um, and I'll let you answer instead of my feeble explanation every time. So people want to know that once their loved one in spirit chooses to reincarnate, you know, does that mean that communication uh, can no longer take place between the, the, the deceased person and those remaining in the physical? Um, so, you know, especially this comes up with, with children and people say, I don't want my child to reincarnate because I'll, I'll never be able to, to be in touch with them. Mm-hmm. So how do, how do you answer that? Well, I mean, we've, we've toured with the idea of doing some kind of study that would combine the two mediumship as, as, with past life memories. But I, I think that we are not necessarily just one thing that, that we sort of have different natures and, and we can have sort of the larger mind that is kind of on the other side. And then also part of our mind that then has an existence here. So uh, yes, mediums could connect with um, a, a soul even after that soul is in a new body, having a new life. Because we're, we're fragments of many, of many lives, and you know uh, that all perhaps go to an oversoul, I guess, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you yeah. know, if you look at like the people who have near death experiences, often talk about when they have a uh, life review is is not necessarily in order; it's all at once. So you know, time has sort of a different. Um, nature, or maybe it's not even time, sort of on the other side. Uh, so again, you, you can be kind of in two places at once. So you can, it, it's sort of like um, a metaphor I've used before is like an actor who has different parts in movies. So, um, or you can pick any actor, but say Jimmy Stewart, where, you know, there, there are Jimmy Stewart parts where he's playing similar characters, but different ones in different roles. Uh, so in each film, there is he is existing in that film, but there's also the larger him, uh, the real Jimmy Stewart, who exists separate from it. And, and it may be that, that um, that's how our realities are for us. There's the larger soul and the larger reality, but then there's us down here as well. Hmm. Uh, so in those cases where children talk about um an in-between you know lives do they ever mention some of the things common to ndes like the seeing seeing deceased relatives or observing earthly events and that kind of thing 
they do talk about observing earthly events and some of them will describe, for instance, seeing the funeral of the previous person, occasionally giving verifiable details. So like there's a little girl in Thailand that, that Ian Stevenson studied where she made all kinds of statements, but she, one of the things was she complained that her ashes had been scattered rather than buried the way she wanted them to be. Well, it turned out the previous uh, person was a woman who um, wanted her ashes buried under the bow tree of the temple complex where she studied. But when her daughter went to bury them, the root system of the tree was so extensive that she couldn't. So she scattered them instead. So, so that was a, a verified uh, detail that the child gave about events uh, between lives. Yeah, um, which is cool because you have tangible evidence. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, so what? How does it play out? You know, as a you know a scientist and a researcher, uh, you get alerted um, to a situation where a child is reporting some extraordinary facts about a um, previous life that gets brought to your attention. Where do you go from there? How how do you begin to investigate? Well, it sort of depends, of course, on the details of the case, but um, often we will do sort of internet sleuthing. I mean, if a child gives details, you know, then we're trying to see, can those details be verified to match an actual past life? And, you know, unfortunately, they don't often just spit out everything that makes it easy to look them up, but that they, they may give, say, a first name or they may give a state. And so we do that kind of work. Um, and if it's promising, then we will uh, interview the, the child and, and the parents, um, usually in person, although lately, of course, we've done some by Zoom. But um, And then we kind of take him from there. Now, I've had a couple of cases where, and one of them's on the the Netflix series, uh, where there were enough details where we could identify whose life the child seemed to be remembering. So I did some picture tests where I would show the child one picture from that life and another one, a a control picture uh, that wasn't part of that life, and, and see if the child could pick out the right one. And, and, um, and the one on Netflix, I think the child was five out of five on, on the picture test. Uh, there's another case where a child remembered being, um, uh, dying in the Vietnam war, uh, an American who died in the Vietnam war. And he was six for six on, on the picture tests. Uh, so when we're able to do that, I, I think that adds a nice, uh, piece of, of, again, tangible evidence that the child, uh, does have a connection to the past life. Hmm. Personally, I, I think out of all the cases that I've read, uh, um, I think that the case of uh, Ryan and, and, and Marty Martin um, mm-hmm. is so unusual and so compelling uh, that, you know, it, it's hard to refute. Could, can you give us a, like a brief overview, overview of that case? Sure. So, yeah, Ryan was a little boy in Oklahoma who, around the age of four, started talking about a past life in Hollywood and um, would get very upset about it and and saying how much he missed his past life and so forth. So um, his mom 
checked out a couple of books from the public library of, about Hollywood uh, to see, because she had heard that um, seeing things from the past life could help a child process these memories and, and then move on. So they were looking through one of the books one day when um, they came to a picture from an old movie called Night After Night. And he pointed to one guy and said, hey, mama, that's George. And, and it turned out it was George Raft, who, who uh, was a well-known actor in his day. Uh, and then he pointed to another guy and said, and mama, that's me. I found me. Well, that guy that he pointed to uh, was an extra with no lines in the movie. So Ryan's mom wrote to me to see if I could help figure out who this guy was. And um, so I went, flew out to Oklahoma and, and met them, talked with them. And then afterwards, I mean, it still seemed like it's going to be quite a struggle to figure out who this was. Uh, but while we were looking, his mom was sending me emails, sometimes on a daily basis, about all of these statements that Ryan was making uh, about his past life, frankly, ones that I thought were unlikely to be uh, from an extra with no lines in a movie. Um, eventually, with the help of a Hollywood archivist, we were able to figure out who this guy was. The archivist, she went to the library of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and collected all the materials about Night After Night, uh, most of which were about the, uh, the stars of the movie. Um, not just George Raft, is also the first movie that Mae West was in. Um, but then there was one picture of this guy, and on the back of it, it gave his name, Marty Martin. Um, so we could then look at this long list of a couple hundred statements that Ryan had made and see how well they matched with Marty Martin. So we, we collected the records that we could, uh, and then we also were able to locate Marty Martin's daughter. Uh, Marty Martin died in 1964, so uh, he'd been gone a long time. But his daughter was only eight when he died. Now, there's a lot about his life that she didn't know because she was so young, including even about one of his sisters. Uh, but combining what she knew along with the records, we were eventually able to document or verify over 50 of Ryan's statements uh, matched Marty Martin's life. Uh, there were a few that were incorrect, and then there were a, a lot that were unverifiable, just little details about daily life that, that we weren't able to verify one way or another. But over 50 of them did fit, and, and uh, it turned out that this extra uh, had had quite a life. So Ryan had talked about uh, dancing on stage in New York and Marty Martin had danced on Broadway. And Ryan then said that he went to Hollywood to, to work in the movies, which Marty Martin did working mostly uh, on dance in the movies. Hmm. Then Ryan said that he worked at an agency uh, where people changed their names and Marty Martin started a successful talent agency. Um, Ryan said how he um, uh, talked about seeing the world from big boats and going to Paris. And, and Marty Martin and his parent and his wife uh, went to uh, Europe on, on the uh, the Queen Mary. Ryan said he had this big house with a swimming pool, which Marty Martin did. Uh, but Ryan also said that the address had the word rock or mount in it, and Marty Martin lived on North Roxbury. 
Um, in addition, Ryan said one time that he didn't see why God would let you get to be 62 and then come back as a baby. And um, Marty Martin's death certificate said that he was 59 when he died. Uh, but his daughter and his stepson both said he was, in fact, 62. So I looked into it. I found three census records, two marriage listings, and a passenger list that all gave ages that meant, in fact, Marty Martin was 62 when he died and not 59. So even though the death certificate said 59, Ryan was even correct on that one uh, when he said 62. Yeah. So when you when you look at those things, even though you have an objective eye, you know, you have to just sit and go, wow. You know, it's like, well, that's right. It, it gets pretty hard to deny that something is going on there. Yeah. What I, what I also like about cases like that, as you mentioned, there were very, 50 very specific, um, you know, facts that were researched and turned out to be true. So you, you can calculate basically, you know, odds against chance of that happening, similar to the mediumship world, you know, medium gives a reading and, you know, I mean, getting one or two pieces of information, mm-hmm. okay. But, you know, when it gets to the point where there are 25 specific pieces yeah. of information, the odds against chance could <laughs> get up to the millions to one. So yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah. So I think that's, um, you know, that, that's great when you're able to verify so much. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you find that um, uh, there's a lot of personality matches between the old you know, the old life and the new life? Well, it's a little hard to say, partly because the kids are so young when we see them, and also partly because it's hard sometimes to get a detailed uh, sort of personality history of the previous person. Um, But we do, so with all our cases, we code them on 200 variables and put them into a database. And we do code for a few personality features um, and again, it's kind of rough science, but, but when we look, there is a statistically significant correlation between the features that the previous person shows and the ones that the child does. Um, I think a reasonable way to put it is that, uh, there is some carryover or, or predilection to have particular characteristics. Um, but as we know, experiences in this life, not to mention genetics, that, you know, have, have a big impact on how we turn out. So the, the past life stuff would just be one more aspect of all this that we may bring into this life. But then our, our experiences after that would certainly shape how we turn out. Yeah. For those that are tuned in late, we are talking with Dr. Jim Tucker. He's the author of, uh, before, uh, which is a combination of his books, Life Before Life and Return to Life. Um, And uh, if you did have a question for Dr. Uh, Tucker, um, you can call in at 888-627-6008. Jim, what what about, um, you know, I know where from reading your your, uh, books that there are cases where uh, people have certain um habits um and you know uh, like and phobias you know like some somebody that never smoked bef- you know before um 
you know, I, I mean, that, that goes in with, with surgery, right? With transplanted people that they never smoked before <laughs> and then they get an organ transplant and they want to smoke. So yeah. do, do you find that um, in your cases, do the children have certain phobias of that would be, for instance, you know, a phobia about, you know, drowning and then they drowned in their previous life or things like that? Uh, yes, uh, we we definitely see those. So in, in the uh, unnatural death cases like drowning or violence or whatever, or car accidents for that matter, um, over 35% of the kids show this intense fear toward the mode of death. And the, the drowning is a good example because it seems to happen more commonly actually with drowning than some of the other cases, uh, some of the other ways of dying. Uh, so like there's this little girl who, basically from the time she was born, hated being in water. It would take three adults to hold her down to give her a bath when she was an infant. And then when she got old enough to talk, describe a life of a girl in another village who had drowned in an accident. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely that kind of thing, which, again, is, is kind of like PTSD. I mean, it, it seems like that the, uh, you know, and of course, PTSD involves memories that people wish they didn't have but they kind of can't get rid of them and along with that can come avoidance or fears about things and it it seems like those traumatic kinds of things uh can carry over even across lifetimes Mm -hmm. Uh, but for that matter addictions can too you mentioned smoking and and we've had a number of cases where the previous person was a heavy smoker or a heavy drinker then the little child would be trying to uh sneak cigarettes or sometimes even sneak liquor um because they're uh, they're so drawn to them uh, just like the previous person was mm. yeah that's uh, that's wild is it true that um people that uh died as a result of um an accident or through violence are more likely to reincarnate quicker uh, that's a good question. Um, and I don't remember the answer to it. I, I, I think we have looked at it and I think you're right, but, but I would have to, to review, uh, to see if in fact that's the case. I think I did recall reading that in one, one of your books, but <laughs> I, I, I mean, I've forgotten my own books. At <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what about prodigies? Any, any, um, correlation um uh, have you looked into that uh, with, with a child prodigy uh somebody that's gifted uh, incredibly let's say with music or art and that gets traced back to a, to a previous life well i mean the short answer is basically not exactly so yeah i mean you see these prodigies with these completely inexplicable abilities uh, but the, the ones that are known as prodigies, um, I'm not aware that any of them have said that they had a past life where they had those skills. Now, on the other hand, with some of our cases, we have had the children to show an unusual level of skill, not necessarily the prodigy level, but we have at least one where um, uh, a case I saw of a little boy who 
bit of a long story, but basically said that he had been Bobby Jones, who was a famous golfer back in like the 1920s or whatever. Yeah. And this kid was a, a golfing prodigy, even though I mean, his parents didn't even play golf. And um, I mean, he dad had videos of him at like four or five with an unbelievably smooth stroke. And, and that kid ended up winning uh, dozens of maybe scores of golf tournaments um, I haven't heard from them lately. I, I don't know how he has done uh, into sort of teen years, uh, but he was close to a golfing prodigy. I mean, he wasn't Tiger Woods, but but he was winning a whole lot of golf tournaments against older kids. Mm. Um, so so that was one that was close to that. And and there are others where maybe not quite that dramatic, but but they either have skills that uh, mystify people or. Um, they were so much better than you would think that they caught on so much more quickly, uh, became good at it uh, more than, than you would expect a kid to. Yeah. I mean, so we know that from NDE research that many people return um, with enhanced uh, psychic ability, um, fairly, I guess, large percentage of people, any evidence in, and children that, that come back, that they, any evidence that they have psychic ability? Uh, some of them show those abilities, and Ryan was one, but most of them do not. And, and I don't know if our case is if it's more or less than the general population, you know, because we don't have good numbers on on that. Yeah. Uh, but but the, it's a very small percentage where the, the families report any sort of psychic abilities at all. Hmm. Um, so I know in mediumship, the skeptics will use the argument that a medium is not really communicating with a discarnate. Uh, they are simply, and that's as if it was easy, uh, <laughs> pulling information from a field of, of, of information or a, uh, similar to an Akashic records or a field mm-hmm. of consciousness. So, uh, it, so they're just extracting um, information. I'm sure that argument has been used um, regarding uh, past life memories of children. That they're, you know, they're, they're so. Uh, how, how do you address that? Well, I think there are a few things. One, when you have verified memories of time between lives, um, that gets to be more of a stretch. I mean, what it is suggesting is that this entity has continued to live and has uh, continued to have experiences. Uh, the birthmark cases, I think, are very hard to explain on an Akashic record kind of explanation. Um, and there's also the emotional piece. I mean, these kids are not just pulling out a list of facts. They are often getting very upset uh, about either traumatic things they experience or how much they miss people from that life, crying, begging to be taken to their previous parents. Uh, So certainly the child's experience is that these memories are memories of things that they had in a, uh, that they experienced in their last life. Uh, That it is not just pulling out information from, from the Akashic records. Um, I think with the mediumship work, I think it's more worth considering. I mean, especially when, you know, you have these controls that are then, um, well, thinking about uh, like with um, uh, 
Mrs. Piper where, uh, you know, Dr. Finn Wee or whatever seemed purely, I mean, seemed clearly to be um, a creation of her mind. Uh, so it makes you wonder if these other entities that, that, that he was communicating with, if they were also a psychic kind of uh, thing. So uh, not to get too much into doubting mediumship. I mean, it's amazing stuff, but, but I mean, they, they both have that potential that is worth exploring. Uh, but I think it's a real stretch with these cases. Yeah. You know, with mediumship, one of, one of the, to me, I think that one of the best arguments against that theory of, of pulling out information is that you could make the argument that it's possible to extract data from a field, but how do you extract a personality, you know? Mm-hmm. You know so, uh, you know, that, that kind yeah. of leans more towards the, you know. Well, exactly. I agree. And, and of course with modern um, mediums, they're not using controls anyway. I mean, they're, they're seemingly, um, you know, connecting right with the deceased person. And you're right. The personality can come through and, um, that's not purely from information. So yeah, it, it, how you explain that with, with some sort of psychic Akashic record thing, I, I think also yeah. becomes a stretch. So most of the cases that um, Ian Stevenson investigated uh, took place in other countries. Um, I assume that's because um, reincarnation is more, um, accepted in in other countries not not as much in in the u.s i guess that's a problem for you as a researcher right i mean in in coming upon cases well yeah maybe if a parent uh has a child that's talking about a past life they you know they just hush them up or take them to a psychiatrist or (laughs) yeah (laughs) well yeah certainly that happens but the it used to be a lot more of a problem than it is now so yeah, in, in countries with a belief in reincarnation, um, I mean those cases sometimes are in the newspaper. So you know, Ian went where he could find the cases, and and he had associates looking for them in places like India or Thailand, and uh, or Burma. A lot of them in Burma, and um, so that's where he found them. Yes, they're harder to find here, but fortunately now the parents find us because with the internet. <laughs> Uh, their child is doing this strange thing about a, talking about a past life. So, you know, they go online and start doing a search and, and they come across us. Uh, so then they can contact us. Now, I'm sure we only get a tiny percentage of the cases. And you're right, there's some where the parents would just reject it. Think the, the, tell the parent, I mean, tell the kid to shut up and, you know, just think it's nonsense. Um, and then there are plenty of others where they are intrigued, but they don't maybe don't want anyone to know. I mean, that happens a lot, but don't even want someone like us to know. Uh, but then there are plenty of parents that are reaching out to us and, and telling us about what their kids are saying. Yeah. Well, I guess you also have to be somewhat guarded, you know, because it's a double edged sword. Now, you know, people see the, the you know, the TV series, they, they you know, this information age um, and they, they want people who are always want to. Um, be in the public eye and, you know, you're a prominent researcher, yeah. so they're going to contact you. So, you know, maybe you have to really weed out these cases, right? It's a problem. 
Well, yeah, except most of the parents do not want to be in the public eye mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, again, it's not accepted here. And I mean, there are exceptions, but there, uh, a lot of them, you know, when we've had opportunities for television or whatever, it's hard to get parents, hard to find families that will agree to even do it. Um, but it is a double-edged sword in the sense that if a child starts giving some details, it's great that we can research it online, but the parents can also research it online, Yeah, you know, yeah. which can then really taint the case if, if they've done a lot of investigating themselves. Yeah. I, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with, with your work, but with this, um, you know, now with the pandemic, the, the medium stopped doing personal in-person mm-hmm. readings and everything was taking place on zoom and other uh, meeting platforms. And, uh, one of um, our certified mediums was telling us that they caught another medium who was doing a reading uh, for a, a sitter. And, you know, when you register in one of these platforms, the mm. host has your, your first and last name. And on, on one side of the screen, the medium had up <laughs> this, the sitter. And on the other side of the screen, the medium had up the sitter's Facebook page. You know, <laughs> and and, the, and the, the medium was simply reading back every piece of information. And of course, the sitter is, people don't know how mediumship yeah. works. You know, and the sitter is, thinks this is the greatest medium that ever lived. Yeah. Um, and it was a total fraudulent reading. Right. <laughs> so, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think fraud and, and often maybe it's just sort of well-meaning kidding themselves kind of stuff. But I think it's a much bigger issue in medium uh, ship work than it is with these cases because mediums can charge money. Um, and with our cases, you know, the families don't get anything out of it. And again, I mean, occasionally there are ones who, you know, want to get some publicity, but, but those are a distinct minority. It's usually much the other way. Yeah. Have you, um, I mean, while we're at it, I mean, have you gotten a lot of, um, increased interest since the, the the netflix series i know we certainly did um but um i mean you know uh, bruce grayson you know was was featured yeah. and you were yeah. featured and, and and several other folks so um did you did, did we that, did yeah yeah. <laughs> right. yeah i mean we've uh both the last two years we've had over 100 families contact us to tell us about what their kids were saying um, so yeah, it certainly increased the traffic that way and, yeah. and, and increased interest in the phenomenon. Yeah. What, which is a good thing, you know, I mean, you're, you were, you know, I guess they accomplished what they set out to do in opening up, you know, people's minds, um, you know, to the poss- at least the possibility that, that we survived that, um, at the end of, Return. We touched on this a little bit earlier, but in the end of uh, Return to Life, um, you speculated about what you called the big picture, and you suggested that each of us may be like a single train of, of thought in one large mind, you know, and that uh, consciousness survives across lifetimes. Um, and I, I think you wrote that experiences that are separated by distance and years can be connected and intertwined. So, but do you believe that we always retain our individual memories and personalities? Well, I mean, I think reality and us and mind and everything, they're probably more complicated than our physical brains are able to 
uh, understand. Yeah, agree. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I do think it's reasonable to say that we may we may all be much more connected than we're aware, and it, it may well be like it's all one large mind. Um, but I still. I'm drawn toward the idea of there also being individual continuation. And our cases provide evidence of that, I mean, indisputably. Um, so, you know, whether eventually we sort of dissolve into the, you know, the grand sea of consciousness, um, I don't know. But, but certainly our cases would suggest, at least from one life to a second life, uh, that there are things that are different. I mean, we've certainly evolved or changed, but there is definitely this continuation uh, that that um, this individual continuation. So it's not just sort of the waves of the sea where they all, you know, then dissolve, but but there is is this intact um, um, thing uh, yeah. entity uh, th- that we each are uh, that continues on. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of people find that comforting. You know, I mean, I always had problems when I, you know, uh, when I first started, you know, reading about, you know, the Eastern philosophies, um, you know, pretty much that you get absorbed into the, you know, the greater consciousness and um, not necessarily retain your, your own individuality. So um, I'm, I'm much you know, I think the evidence, as you suggested, points to, I mean, otherwise, like mediumship wouldn't be able to take place, you know, I mean, yeah. it's clear that memories and personalities survive, um, you know, how, how much and to what degree and for how long, who knows, but mm-hmm. certainly um, for quite a, a long time, at least in our physical years, um, those can be communicated you um i know we don't have much time but i don't even know if you remember that you wrote it but uh you you made a statement and also in the in the same book we don't go to another place we simply have another dream Hmm. you remember what you meant by that uh yes i do so (laughs) i didn't want to put you on the spot (laughs) yeah (laughs) um so yeah it's it gets into the physics a little bit, which I will spare you, but the, uh, I make the case that life, reality, is, is like a shared dream where the, the things come into existence when we experience them. And, um, um, and then when we, when we die, we continue to have experiences, and they may be back in a another life here, or they may be a completely different kind of experience, but it's not like we hop on a train and go to another place. It's that we have this continuation of, of this dreamlike reality, which is what reality is, that it's growing out of mind, it's growing out of consciousness, and, um, and, and we just continue on with it. Yeah. All right. So um, we have been talking with Dr. Jim Tucker. Um, Jim's website is jimbtucker.com, but I encourage everybody not only to read um, Jim's books because they're very uh, compelling, uh, but also find out more. Um, I mean, just look up the University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies uh, and you will see 
everything that they're involved in. And it's, and this, the scope is very broad um, and, and really some top researchers uh, in the world uh, in that very division that Jim had. So um, they're one of the beacons in, in, in this uh, realm of discovery. So we appreciate them very much. Uh, Jim, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, it was my pleasure as always. Hope to talk to you again soon. Well, thanks. It was great talking to you, Bob. Thanks. Have a good evening. Okay, that's a wrap for us. We will see you uh, next week for on the gathering. Uh, you can email your questions in. Maybe some of them Jim already answered. So uh, that'll make it easier for us next week. So everybody have a good evening and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.